We come to the end this morning of a series of messages on end times. Uh, I've had some interesting comments over the last few Sundays about these topics. Uh, many of you have expressed how much you have enjoyed uh, focusing on themes in Scripture that we don't typically talk much about, uh, and uh, therefore it's given you some, some insight and some understanding that perhaps you didn't have before. Some of uh, you have expressed uh, that prior to this series, you were reluctant to even venture into that part of Scripture because uh, it was uh, sort of frightening. But now that we've taken a look at it and we know how it ends, and for believers, there's not a thing in the world to be worried or scared about. I've had some folks express uh, questions as to why in the world are we even bothering to talk about these things? Because these aren't topics that are typically discussed or preached in Methodist churches. Well, I have a confession. I used to agree with that. There was a time when reading, studying, knowing about biblical prophecy, particularly Revelation, was just something that I didn't think was all that important. And, and Revelation was a book that I seldom, if ever, to be honest, read. You know, we've been talking about signs of the end times. The fact of the matter is, uh, people who've known me for a long time will say, the fact that Stuart Green is preaching a series on end times could well be a sign of end times itself because he just doesn't do that. Well, I've discovered that, that talk of, of Christ's return, talk of end times, it is, is not limited, however, to the book of Revelation. And I've, I've rediscovered that these themes are woven through the fiber of the entire Bible. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old and New Testaments about the return of Christ. In the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses refers to Jesus' return. And therefore, to eliminate interest in these matters would kind of be equivalent to going to a movie, getting up every 10 minutes to leave, come back, leave, come back, and then decide to not even watch the final 15 minutes of the movie. Or to read a novel and to skip every 25th page and decide not even to bother reading the final chapter. To understand the movie, you got to watch the whole movie. And to understand the novel, you got to read all the pages, particularly the, the last chapter. And to understand God's story, God's story of creation and love and redemption, to understand God's story requires listening and understanding and knowing and reflecting on all parts of God's Word, not just those that we might find most interesting. And so we, we've dived into a part of Scripture that is unfamiliar to a lot of us and 
awkward and complex because it is just as important as every other part of God's Word. And to simplify Revelation, because admittedly it is a complex collection of stories and visions and metaphor, and to, to, comp- to, to simplify and take away as much as we can, we've kind of taken the aerial big view and just highlighted the, the, the key components of what it's trying to tell us. We've identified what the book of Revelation calls the rapture to be followed by the rise of the Antichrist and the period known as the Tribulation. And and then we talked about what happens next, the second glorious return, the coming of Christ, and his establishing of the millennial kingdom on the earth. That sets the stage now for the conclusion. So with that introduction... Let's see what happens next. For our scripture reading this morning, uh, we're going to share together and uh, to prove that this is Methodist material, we're going to read from number 734, our Methodist hymnal, where we find these things. Now, would you stand together? What this is, this is a collection of verses from from Revelation 21 and 22. I'll read the portion uh, in regular print, and you'll read the portion in the bold print as we read your sponsor. Let's stand together, if you will. Number 734. We shall see a new heaven and earth, for the old will pass away. We shall see a new Jerusalem the holy city descending from heaven. The city shall, not, shall need no sun or moon, for God's glory will be its light, for God's Lamb will be its lamp, and by its light the nations shall walk. We shall hear a loud voice from the throne. Behold, God's dwelling is with mortals. Indeed, God will dwell with them, and they will be God's people. God shall wipe away all our tears, and there shall be no more death. Mourning, crying, and pain shall cease, for all former things will pass away. We shall hear one speak from the throne. Behold, I make all things new. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Our Lord testifies to these things. Behold, I am coming soon. The grace of the Lord is with us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. You may be seated. So, to pick up, Jesus has established the 1,000-year millennial reign. At the end of that reign, Revelation tells us that Satan is released for one final effort to defeat God. We're told in Revelation of a second general resurrection where uh, believers will be resurrected into the new heaven and new earth that's about to happen. Non-believers will be resurrected into what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. Now, 
this new heaven and this new earth we're told that God is going to create. Maybe the question is why? What's wrong with the current heaven? What's wrong with the current earth? Well, there's nothing wrong with the current heaven, but the current earth uh, has need for a lot of attention. It's still broken. It is marred with decay. Its resources are depleted. It needs replenishing. It needs transformation. It needs, like we need, to be resurrected. And so according to Revelation, God is going to do something phenomenal with this earth. God is going to restore the earth. He's going to cleanse it. He's going to transform it into a new earth. Now, the earth that we're in is not going to be destroyed and replaced with another. It's going to be this earth, only purified, only made new. You see, when the Bible talks about that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, new does not mean a different or another earth. It is new qualitatively. God is going to take this earth and redeem it, glorify it, transform it into something far more spectacular than it currently is. You know, there's a phrase in the glory of pottery that was always problematic for me. And we sang it just a moment ago. You, you know it. World without end. Well, I used to sing that and thought, well, no. God's Word tells us that the world is going to come to an end one day. So why are we singing world without end? The Bible does not tell us, nor does Revelation predict, that the world that we now know will end. The world as we know it will end. But the earth itself will be transformed, renewed, resurrected into something of God's creation. Now, here's a concept that will stretch your mind. According to Revelation, heaven is going to be expanded to include the earth. Now, this is going to be a whole new paradigm for us because we see heaven as the place that we go when we die. At the end, God's going to do something only God can do. God is going to take heaven and the new earth, the new resurrected earth, and they are going to become one. Here's how John MacArthur describes it. In the consummation of all things, God will renovate the heavens and the earth, merging his heaven with a new universe or a perfect dwelling place that will be our home forever. In other words, heaven, the realm where God dwells, will expand to encompass the entire universe of creation which will be fashioned into a perfect and glorious domain fit for the glory of heaven. Now, I understand, if you don't grasp that, you're in good company. This is beyond 
our finite minds here. Heaven and earth will become one. Earth will be heaven. Heaven will be earth. So, heaven is not some place we'll go to, we'll die, and then we'll go there. Heaven is an earth, our place where we live. Death is no more, so we live and live and live. Now, the most noticeable, noticeable, notable description of this merger is described by John as he's telling what the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is going to be like. Now, I, I want to share this because as I was reading this in preparation, I couldn't possibly do a better job of, of articulating uh, what this is going to be like. So just let me just share John's words here about this new heaven, this new Jerusalem, and how marvelous and spectacular it's going to be. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 21, beginning with verse 9. Just listen. Let your mind, if you can, go there. The angel said, Come with me, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. In a vision, he took me to a towering mountain peak, and from there I watched that wondrous city, the Holy, Jeru- the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of the skies from God, from heaven. It was filled with the glory of God and flashed and glowed like a precious gem, crystal clear like jasper. Its walls were broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. The angel held in his hand a golden measuring stick to which the city and its gates, to measure the city and its gates and walls. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long, in fact, in the form of a cube. For its height was exactly the same as its other dimensions, 1,500 miles each way. Then he measured the thickness of the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. The city itself was pure, transparent, gold-like glass. The walls were made of jasper and was built on 12 layers of foundation stones inlaid with precious gems. The first layer was jasper, the second with sapphire, the third with chalcedony, the fourth with emerald, the fifth with sardonyx. I know I'm massacring some of these. These are actual, you can look these up. These are beautiful, beautiful gems. The sixth layer with sardis, the seventh crystallite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, Chrysoprase, the eleventh, Jacinth, the twelfth, Amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure, transparent gold like glass. No temple could be seen in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are worshipped in it everywhere. And the city has no need of sun or moon to light it. For the glory of God and the Lamb illuminate it. Its light will light the nations of the earth, 
and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it. Its gates never close. They stay open all day long, and there is no night. And the glory and honor of all the nations shall be brought into it. Nothing evil will be permitted in it. No one immoral or dishonest, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is John's way of, of, of letting us know that whatever we think about heaven, it is going to be more. No matter what we can imagine, it is going to be more spectacular, more incredible, more glorious, more beautiful. And interestingly enough, he he takes time to give us the dimensions of the holy city. Why, I'm not sure, but it's, it's fascinating. And for people who really like punching numbers, the New Jerusalem according to John's vision, is going to be 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles cubed. That's the distance from Canada to Mexico, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Rockies. And if the city has stories, were to have stories, at 13 feet each, it would have 660,000 stories from top to bottom. It's been calculated that with these dimensions... Within this cube of the city, it would accommodate 20 billion people. And with a six six billion in the world today, 20 billion people, each with their own 75-acre, square-acre property. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big space, isn't it? Now... Are the numbers meant to be literally applied? I, I don't know, but I think John's point here, and imagine what those numbers would have meant in the ancient world. John is trying to suggest to us that heaven is beyond, it is more than anything we could ever imagine. There's not going to be the need for sun or moon because the glory of God himself will illuminate the place. Now, if all this sounds beyond your understanding? It is. It is beyond our understanding. We can't get our finite small minds around this. But that's of necessity. Because we, in it, with our finite minds, if we, in our limited knowledge, and capabilities as human beings, if we could fully grasp the awesomeness and fully explain the majesty of of heaven, then it's not much of a place. But it transcends our capacity to fully grasp. But here's the truth about the new heaven and the new earth. where we will spend eternity. It is beyond our comprehension. But it is not beyond our grasp. It isn't meant to be explained. 
It is meant to be pursued. It's not a thing to analyze. It is a truth to internalize. It's it's not a concept to describe. It's a place to one day abide. And who's going to abide there? Those who know Christ. Those who have accepted his offer of salvation. When we first launched the study of Revelation, we said on that very first Sunday that one of the things that that Revelation seeks to do, its overriding purpose is a simple one. To let us know that in the scope of God's plan and will for now and for eternity. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And Revelation pleads with us. Revelation invites us. It implores us to choose the right kingdom. Anything really more than that is peripheral. Choose wisely. For those who choose the kingdom of God, The end of time contains nothing to fear or worry about. Choose wisely. Let's pray together. Oh God, we confess that There is so much about this new heaven and this new earth that we we just don't understand. Oh God, we understand this. That at some point in history, your love for us is so great that you left the vastness of the heavens and came to us through a person named Jesus. He lived and loved and cared for people and showed us how to live life most effectively and then he died an agonizing death and you rose him back to life and gave him a resurrected body and he ascended and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and When I come back, I'll take you with me. That much we do understand. And whenever the events that we've talked about happen, however they happen, we are secure. And our eternity is amazingly wonderful.
when we know you. God, I just pray that the reflection that we have made these last four weeks would not just give us information about what your word says about end times, but that your Holy Spirit would provide conviction and inspiration to lead us to a point of faith where we seek you as never before. Well, God, before Jesus left this earth, he told us that he was coming back. He also gave us a, a wonderful act that we've come to know as the Lord's Supper. And he said to us, I want you to continue this ritual, continue this sacrament until I return. So when we engage in Holy Communion, oh Lord, it is not merely remembering of a time in history when you came, but it is an actuality, an act of faith and obedience and anticipation of your return. May we enter into the sacrament with that understanding and with that sense of awe. In the name and spirit of Christ we pray. Amen.